Good morning. And another, another round of encountering Jesus. And today I'd like to talk about some of the stories surrounding the cross of Jesus. So open your Bibles to Luke 23. You might want to keep them there because we're going to be going back into the passage quite a few times. And at the end, we're going to, as a response to the message, take the Lord's Supper. Now, one of my favorite television programs is a British-French program called, I'm asking for responses here, Death in Paradise. Anybody? Oh, you've already seen it. Ah, it's in its 13th year. And one thing that I've learned about watching this program, it's wildly popular in France, unbelievably popular in the United Kingdom, the most watched program in the United Kingdom. One thing I've learned about it, every person there tells a story. At the beginning, they, they don't seem like it, but but every character tells a story. So if you want to stay with the storyline, you've got to learn something about each character. That's what we, I would like to do this morning. Take a look at the, some of the stories that are swirling around the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus, of course, is the main character. There's no doubt about that. And uh, But what about the others? Do they have any stories, any challenges for us? Something that we can learn as they have their encounter with Jesus? So let's pick up the narrative. Jesus had been condemned to death. And it was by crucifixion. By crucifixion meaning he was not a Roman citizen. Because they did not crucify Roman citizens. Now, he was to carry his own cross to the place of the skull. Sometimes you might know it as Golgotha. Uh, that's uh, Aramaic or Calvary, which is Latin. And, and uh, this is where we encounter the first person. Luke twenty three twenty six. As they led him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Simon of Cyrene. We got a photo of him. There he is. And, um, you know, he's mentioned in three of the four Gospels as the man forced by the Roman soldiers to carry Jesus' cross out of Jerusalem. Cyrene was a country, it was, Cyrene was located in modern day what we would call Libya, which is in the northern coast of the African continent. Now, to get to Jerusalem, to get to Jerusalem from there, you would have to either go by boat or go across Egypt. Cyrene was settled by the Greeks in 630 BC and was the capital of the Roman district of, now you think I, I'd be able to pronounce this word, but I'm going to give it a shot. Cyrenaica. And that's the way, sort of the way we pronounce it in Spanish. 
at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, by then Cyrene was the home to a large, now this is important, large number of Greek-speaking Jews. And you know, they were called Hellenistic Jews. Now many Jews from Cyrene had returned to Israel and were part of a community in Jerusalem made up of Jews and people from other provinces, places like Egypt and Cilicia and Asia. Listen to this. This is... Uh, um, uh, in, in Acts chapter 6, there were some, those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Sicily and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, Luke records men of Cyrene being among those converted at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And after the martyrdom, when Stephen was killed in Acts 7, believers from Cyrene were among the first to be scattered by the persecution in Jerusalem. And here's what we, we know. However, some of the believers, this is Acts 11.20, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. These believers were instrumental in the formation of the church in Antioch, where for the first time, remember, the disciples were called Christians. And from there on, they're called Christians. Now, Mark adds something interesting to this story. Mark, he says about the story of Simon, he says, Simon, by the way, are these coming up? Yeah, okay. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. He just throws it in. In this story. Now, I read it through and I said, man, Mark thought that his readers knew who they were. So uh, Simon had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Now, Paul later says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Romans, I bet you passed over that a lot of times and didn't notice that. Romans 16, 13. Now, it's entirely possible that Simon's life was changed at the cross. And this spread to his wife and spread to his children. Now, but the question is, why was a person forced to help Jesus carry his cross? You know, it was common for crucifixion victims to be beaten beforehand which we know happened to Jesus. Just take a look at John chapter 19. And this would partly be for humiliation, but also the flogging would make the victim die more quickly. So the Roman whips in those days uh, were brutal. They had multiple leather strips and they had bits of, of either lead or glass embedded in them. So when Jesus was carrying his cross, he obviously was very weak. So it's likely the Romans noticed that Jesus was having maybe a hard time carrying the cross. And any disruption to the crucifixion process would make the Roman soldiers look really bad. So, so it was more important, you know, for them to get the, the victims to the execution point for, because there were two reasons. Shame the victim and frighten the onlookers. So, if they couldn't do that, they'd lose their purpose. So the Romans had to make sure carrying the cross didn't kill Jesus. 
So getting someone there to carry the cross was a simple solution to the problem. And that was Simon of Cyrene, our first person here. Now, what does Simon's brief appearance here in the narrative teach us? First, to me, it was no accident that Simon of Cyrene arrived at that point, at that moment, because if he had got there five minutes later or five minutes earlier, he would have missed the whole procession. But that's not what happened. Simon, from the city, a North African city of Cyrene, was brought to that precise spot at that precise moment to help God's own son, Jesus. And we, maybe I, need to remember that the hands of God are always at work in our lives in order to produce a result desired by God. It reminded me of Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if we could only see everything from God's perspective, we would understand that these things are not coincidences. Also, it's very possible that Simon of Cyrene, when he carried the cross of Jesus, saw what was happening at Calvary, came to understand what the meaning of it was, and changed his life. Second, it's interesting. Luke, here, is the only one of the gospel that says that Simon carried the cross. Have you ever noticed this? Behind Jesus? The other gospels just say he carried the cross. But this was behind Jesus. Now, does Luke want us to remember Luke 9.23, Luke 14.27, where he said, If anyone would come after me, follow me after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, is Luke suggesting here that this is a picture of discipleship? of taking up your cross and following Jesus. Um, It's interesting that uh, Luke 9.23 says, adds a word that's not in Matthew, take up our cross daily. You know, for years I heard, I guess I've heard Luis Palau say this 50 to 60 times. When our will crosses with God's will, And we choose God's will. It's dying to ourself. It's taking up our cross and following Jesus. So that's the first story surrounding the cross. What about the second one? The women who followed Jesus. Look, let's dive into the narrative in Luke 23, 27 to 31. And there following him, a great multitude of people and of women. Of course, course the women were part of the people. But he signals him out who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, to the women, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? But who were these women that were following Jesus? Some of them are named. 
and uh, they were the first to to go to the tomb after his burial. The gospel gives us a few. Number one, remember Mary Magdalene? He was a woman whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. Also listed as Salome, the wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John. I always get a laugh out of James and John were called the sons of thunder. I always wonder what they were like. But it's interesting, one of the sons of thunder wrote more about love than any other writer in the Bible. First John, Gospel of John, Second John, and Third John. How about Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph? And then there was another one, Mary, the mother of Jesus. You know, I had either forgotten or didn't know that she had a sister. Did you know that Mary had a sister? Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her sister, it says in John 19.25. And then also there was many grief-stricken women and other unnamed women. These women followed Jesus where others had not, watching and weeping during Christ's agonizing moments leading up to the cross. But, you know, where were the disciples? And I asked myself, where would I have been? Where were the disciples? Jesus actually had told the disciples at the Last Supper in Matthew 26, tonight all of you will desert me. Now he would go on to quote Zechariah in saying, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now though the disciples scoffed, they scoffed, no, not me, I would never desert you. They scoffed at the notion that they'd abandoned him. Later the same night, when the chief priests, the elders, and the crowd came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew says, all the disciples left him and fled. But why would, why would the disciples, apart from John, John hung back. And, and we see him that he was actually there at the cross. Why would they abandon Jesus while the women Remain. There's a lot of, there's a lot of explanations, but when faced with the prospect of persecution, imprisonment, or even death, the disciples basically were afraid. And they knew that what happened to Jesus would likely happen to them if they remained. So, I want, I want to say, even though they did abandon Jesus, it's worth remembering that, number one, Jesus forgave them, loved them, restored his disciples after the resurrection. Have you ever abandoned Jesus? You know, I, I have to admit, I'm, I, mostly, for me, I missed a lot of golden opportunities that I was given. Next, Christ empowered. By the word, that word empowered. When I was growing up, it, it wasn't, you know, I never heard it. And I looked it up and it started in 1986. So it's a fairly new word. Christ empowered them to spread the gospel and form the church. The same people that abandoned him. Third, all the disciples, with the exception of Judas, who committed suicide, and John, who died in his old age, would go on to die a martyr's death. Obviously, they never again denied or abandoned their Lord and Savior. Back to the women. 
Now, the significance of the women at the cross and the resurrection, to me, says a lot about them, but it also says a lot about the heart of Jesus. It was a woman who anointed Jesus' head with oil in preparation for his burial, Mark 14. It was it, the, a woman urged her husband. Her husband happened to be Pontius Pilate, but it was a a woman urged her husband to leave that innocent man alone. The women were the ones to stand at the foot of the cross as Jesus breathed his last. Women were the first to arrive at the tomb to anoint the body of their Lord with oils and spices. And women were the first individuals to be entrusted with taking the good news of Christ's resurrection to the disciples. They came, they saw, they went, they told others just as the angel told them to do. What can these women teach me? What can these women teach us? Number one, I think a deep love for Jesus. These women love Jesus. And that's why they they were the first ones to the tomb. The lesson we can learn here is to love Jesus deeply under and through all circumstances. Psalm 56, 3 says, but when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. They did not abandon Jesus when he was crucified or even when he died. We can learn a lot from the level of love, even when circumstances try to shake our faith. We can remain steady. Second, what do they teach us? Servanthood. These women had faith, which led them to be faithful servants. When Jesus traveled from town to town, they followed. They served him until the time he left the earth. Our lesson to me comes from 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for everyone. So that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. A third thing we can learn from them is their close relationship with Christ. Jesus, let's talk about Mary Magdalene. Jesus had delivered Mary Magdalene from seven demons. And so we see her crying at Jesus' tomb. And then then he appeared to her and she was overjoyed. You know, every one of us, in one way or another, have been delivered from something, delivered from sin, which should, like Mary, should draw us closer to Jesus. Maybe, maybe it goes without saying, but Jesus longs to have a close and intimate relationship with each one of us. I know, I know there's a lot of things that are keeping that from happening, but he died for us. So that through him, we could be reconciled to God and have fellowship with him every day. Next, they gave of their own resources for the ministry. These women who were at Jesus' tomb used their own personal resources. They gave from what they had to meet the needs of people around them. When they went to the tomb, remember, they had prepared spices and ointments for Jesus' body. What a beautiful picture of giving, sacrifice, and devotion. Oh, that I would learn to give myself like these women. And finally, loyalty to Jesus. These women were loyal. They were always at his side, even at the very end, when they were going to anoint his body. 
you can imagine the challenges, you know, that Jesus faced as he moved from town to town. Some people insulted him. Some people tried to drive him away through all this. The women were with him and they never walked away. The lesson I took away from this was that my relationship with Jesus should not be affected by the circumstances I face. That we should continue to be loyal to Jesus no matter what we face in life. One, one uh, scripture, Proverbs 3, 3. Never let loyalty and kindness leave you. Tie them around your neck as a reminder. Write them deep within your heart. The women. There's more. Story surrounding the cross number three. The two criminals. We used to call them the two thieves. Now we're calling them the two criminals. Two others. Both criminals were led to be out to be executed with him. Now, the first thing I thought of here was, even in his death, Christ identified himself with us, sinners. So, let's, let's go back to Luke 23. When they came to the place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they, don't, they do not know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. According to the law, their law, the soldiers had the right to divide among themselves the belongings and the clothing of the victims. Verse 35, the crowd watched and the leader scoffed. He saved him others. They said, let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, too, by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened to the cross above him with these words. This is the king of the Jews. Now, the title of king of the Jews was put above the head where they always put the offense or crime. Criminal, murderer, (laughs) and king of the Jews. You say, well, what kind of a crime is that? Well, it was considered treason and was a direct challenge to the Roman authorities. A man would carry this inscription walking in front of the criminal through the streets until they arrived at the place of execution. Back to the narrative. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself. And us too, while you're at it. But the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. The earthly life of Jesus was over. As a human, he'd suffered death on the cross. For his disciples, the dream had come to an end. And And they turned to life before, let's go fishing. Let's go back to be fishermen. As Jews, they were waiting for something different. They wanted a military Messiah. They wanted someone to come in and bring down Rome. Not a humble Messiah. Not one for whom 
the end of his life would be dying on a cross. For his enemies, whew, goodbye, good riddance. Jesus had received what he deserved. For those present passing by out of curiosity, poof, another criminal had died. The death of Jesus did not hold much importance for them. The government of Rome. Well, a person who had disturbed the peace had died. However, we had to liberate Barabbas. How about for us? His death ended a brief but important ministry. His death ended a life without sin. The first and only time in history that this had happened. Something only God could bring about. It is a death that paid the penalty for our sins and for those of the whole world. Romans 4.25 puts it this way. He was handed over to die because of our sins. And he was raised to life to make us right with God. So the significance of Jesus' death really depends upon your viewpoint and how deeply you look into it. So let's take a look at the two criminals for a second. The criminal on the left, I really don't know which side they were on, but I'm saying that this was the guy on the left. One of the criminals, hanging beside him, scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. The word translated there in the Greek scoffed is a very strong word. And the tense of the verb gives the idea or indicates that he was doing it continually. He wouldn't let up, repeating the same insults over and over. This criminal wanted Jesus to come down off the cross and save them from physical death. His point of view was basically this. I want an immediate physical solution. He didn't understand that if Christ were to come down off that cross, then he would not be the savior of the world. Let's take a look at his theology. He knew that Christ had some type of authority or power and that Christ's title was king and also that he had many followers. He knew that he had gotten himself into a terrible fix and needed help. Therefore, he knew he was a sinner. Third, nevertheless, he wanted a solution to his present circumstances without a change of heart. Now, I'm sure that each of us here knows someone like that. Or maybe we were like that. Someone who wants a way out of their problems without giving their life over to Christ and wanting a heart change. You know, Paul says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 5. They will act religious but they will reject the power that could make them godly. What was the reaction of Jesus? Silence. And his silence spoke volumes. How about the criminal on the right? Matthew 27:44. It says this, even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. Apparently, this he was ridiculing him also. He was doing the same insults. But there was a change and it was resounding. Suddenly he was different, different from before, different from the other thief for sure. He had committed a crime, perhaps he was a murderer, and his punishment was justified. But while he was on the cross, something happened. 
that made him totally change. Instead of continuing with the insults, he began to reprimand the other criminal. He says, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. What caused the change? Well, now, you know, we don't know for sure, but it certainly is possible that it was first Jesus' silence as he faced the insults of the thieves, the soldiers, the Jewish leaders. And in spite of being alone on the cross and in spite of the insults and the pain of the crucifixion, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. The criminal saw this. He saw a life that was different, peace in the midst of suffering. So let's take a look at his theology. Number one, he knew he was a sinner. We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. He believed he had received a just condemnation. He believed that sinners would receive punishment. He believed in God. Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? He believed that Christ didn't deserve to die. This man hasn't done anything wrong. He knew who to appeal to in time of need. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he believed that Christ would rise again. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He began with insults and he ended asking for spiritual help. What was the reaction of Jesus? It wasn't silence. Here's how he reacted to the second criminal. I assure you, today you will be with me. This is absolute assurance. And salvation is only in Christ and in no one else. And then he says, with me in paradise. Now, the Lord uses the word paradise here instead of heaven. And, and this is a word that was inherited from the Greeks and, and, um, and then from the Persians. And they got it from the Persians. It meant a garden or a park. Now, when a king wanted to s- somehow specially appreciate one of his subjects, he would take him into the garden, paradise, take him into the garden. It was an intimate word that meant that the criminal would enjoy intimate communion with Jesus that same day. It doesn't get any better than that. In spite of his sins, Christ forgave this criminal. You know, I looked at this and I say, you know, it's a pity he didn't receive the good news of salvation years before so he could spend at least some time on the earth helping people instead of hurting them. There's one more. Stories around the cross. It's the centurion, or we might call the centurion and the soldiers. Luke 23, 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. The old, my oldest grandson right now is waiting for his, apparently this is a big deal, his orders from the Air Force, where they're going to send him. And our third oldest son is planning right now on going to the Coast Guard Academy. So we've been reminded that soldiers are committed to putting their mission 
and their orders before comfort and their comrades before themselves. It's a lifestyle of discipline, structure, and teamwork. That's what a centurion was. A centurion was a Roman officer in command of a hundred, century, hundred men, but actually sometimes it went up to five hundred. In the Roman army, the centurion was a position of great honor. Centurions would always lead the charge into battle, and as a result, there was a high instance of injury and death. And away from the battlefield, the centurions kept the discipline in the ranks. They, they, they led police actions in occupied areas and oversaw executions. The Jews hated the Roman soldiers because there was the, every approach they did was brutal to any and all problems. Now, back to Matthew 27, 54. This is from the Amplified. Now, the centurion... And those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, they were terribly frightened and filled with awe and said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is a statement from a seasoned veteran who had been watching men die horrible deaths for years. Yet there was something different about this. What did he see? First, he saw Jesus' response to the horrific treatment at the hands of the Roman soldiers and, of course, his own countrymen. He saw Jesus' mercy towards the mob and the soldiers, including the centurion, when he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. You know another thing he saw? Creation's response to the Creator's death. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that happened. They saw the sun go dark. They felt the power of the earth moving under their feet. They, 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 they saw the supernatural events suddenly end when Jesus gave it up with a loud voice. We can say with a centurion that this was no ordinary execution. Not one that he had seen before. The darkness, the earthquake, and the shout from Christ. The events terrified and made him realize that they had just put to death the Son of God. There was no ordinary power. Their conclusion that he was truly the Son of God came only from seeing the power of God on display in Jesus' responses and in nature. And there was no ordinary confession. The centurion's confession tells us something important. Jesus is revealed as our Savior and God most clearly in his death. The book of Romans puts it this way. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In other words, we don't have to be there to be certain of what he did. All who are saved are saved because of the death of Christ on the cross, which we're going to remember in a couple of minutes. That includes you and me and battle-weary soldiers like the centurion. The cross is the power of God to save all who trust him. Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You know, we've said this many times, and I'll say it again. The ground is always level at the foot of the cross. There it is where the poor and the rich and the old and the young and the good and the bad and, yes, centurions find level ground to kneel before Christ who died for them and for us. So let's say with the centurion, surely he is the Son of God. 